All right. Good morning. Uh, go ahead, take out your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have uh, started our new series last week, just walking through this letter to the church of 1 Corinthians. So we're in chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 10 here in just a moment. Last week, uh, we opened up this letter by kind of giving the background, a little bit about who Paul is, uh, where Corinth is, the setting that all of this is taking place, and really try to kind of give a firm foundation as, as Paul going to build on before he gets into the real kind of the issues and the nitty-gritty uh, that are going on in the church in Corinth that we here are facing today. And we're going to be blown away if you haven't studied the book, the book of 1 Corinthians or read it lately. I think you will be just blown away as we walk week by week through this book of how it just relates so well to where we are as a culture today, where we are as a church today. Uh, but we try to set the foundation for the reality that, that Paul says all of this is from God. This is, this is his word. This is not my opinion. This is not uh, some good advice. But these are the words of God to his people that we might know who we are in him, that we might walk in the freedom that he provides for us. And so we try to lay this foundation down that Paul, again, is going to build on for the church this week, that all of this is from God. And we need to understand that so that we can hear from him and understand that it is a higher authority than our own opinion. That it's, a, that it's a higher authority than the things that we think, than the things that we have heard, than what the culture has to tell to us. That our God, the God of the universe, who is sovereign over all things, has the right to tell us no has the right to tell us how to live and, and how to walk in the freedom that he has provided for us and where the joy that he actually gives to us in him by grace is found and lived in. And so all that he is, is calling us to is for his glory and our joy. It's what he has created us to. But without the foundation that this is from God, then we might have the tendency to just think, well, Paul, that's your opinion. Well, Brandon, that's your interpretation. But what we want to lay out is exactly what God has said to us. And so we saw that last week. This week, we're going to see an important foundation that Paul wants us to understand as the church. He wants us to call, be called to unity. Um, how many of you would absolutely love it? I'm not going to ask you how many of you think there's unity the way that you want it in the church, because I know no hands would go up. Um, but how many of you would love it if there was true love community, unity in the church today. All of us. All of us. And the foundation that Paul wants to lay is that we in Christ can have unity, but he also wants us to understand how important it is. And so that's what we're going to look at in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 10 in just a moment. But I want to pray for us as we open God's word. God, thank you for this time that we get to spend together in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would just open our, our hearts to receive, our minds to understand, God, who you are. God, we, we desperately need to hear from you. We desperately need to understand that you are the Lord and Savior, that, that you are freedom, that you are salvation, that you are life, that you are truth, that you are love, that you are compassion, that you are grace, that you are mercy, that you are forgiveness that you are good and that you are in control and sovereign over all things. And God, you are our Savior and our Lord and our King, and your kingdom is the kingdom that we long for. 
And so, God, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would make these things so true to us. I pray for those that may not know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I'm thankful that they are here, and I pray that they would feel welcomed and loved and cared for. But, God, that you also would open the eyes of their heart and their mind to know that you are all that they've been looking for. And God, for those of us that love you, I pray that you would just entrench this idea of the unity that you give to us through our salvation in you and the power of the Holy Spirit living and working through us, that unity is something that we are called to, and we would see how important it is and begin to walk in that unity for all joy and for your glory. God, I also just lift up the church of of our city. God, we know that everywhere that your word is proclaimed today, we desire for you to add to your church and to build up your people. And so, Lord, right now, as many people around our city and, and around the world are gathering together to open your word, to proclaim your truth, to sing your praises, God, I pray that you would move in a powerful way in our city. I pray for every single church that lifts your gospel truth up in our city today, the same way that we would pray for our church this morning. God, that you would move. It is about you and is it about your kingdom. And so, Lord, would you move in powerful ways this morning? Would your word cover our city like a cloud and would transformation all over our community happen? In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start out by telling you about a promise and a prayer. And this promise and prayer are intrinsically important in us understanding who God is, why Jesus came, why Jesus died, why Jesus rose, who we are in him. And also, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, what you are invited into in the gospel truth. The promise we find in Matthew chapter 16 in verses 13 through 20. This is when Jesus is talking with the disciples and he he asks the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter, we we find out from Jesus, uh, gets this from God, which is the only way that we know who God is, that we understand him, that our eyes are open to him, is that he reveals himself to us. And Peter speaks up to this question, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus, of course, says, God has opened your eyes to this Peter. And and we know that Peter means like little rock, right? And and a lot of times we get confused with this this passage, but the word Peter, the name Peter means little rock. And, And Jesus is saying, Peter, God has opened this up to you for your understanding that, that yes, I am the Messiah. And on that truth, Jesus says, that I am the one who has come to live perfectly on your behalf, to die for the penalty of your sin, to rise from the dead, to overcome sin and death, so that by grace, through your faith in the work that I have done, you might be saved. You might be brought back into community with me. You might understand the identity that you were created to have based on that truth that I came to live and to die and to rise and to ascend into my rightful place, sovereign over all of creation on that rock, that big rock. And even in that little Peter, the little rock, and Jesus, this big rock of truth, of the gospel, of what Jesus has come to do, we begin to even see in that little statement this intertwining of God's people and what he has for them on his mission with the gospel truth and the salvation that comes in the gospel, in salvation, in Jesus. And here's what he says, on that big rock, 
on that big rock, I will build my church. It's a promise. And then he says, he adds to it, he makes it even better. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That it is the eternal community, that it is the community that we were created to know, that it is the community that will not be overcome by anything on earth. It is a community that cannot be taken away from, and it is a community that cannot be added to. When we are in Jesus, we are brought into a belonging, a people, a church. We are his bride. We are his body. And it is the community that we long for. It's the community that we were created for. It's a community that reflects the community that we're brought into with him through our salvation by placing our faith in him and his work for us. And the gates of hell will not prevail. It's a promise that darkness will not overcome those who have placed their faith in Jesus. It's a promise that evil will not prevail, that sin will will not forever enslave us, that death will not defeat you, that addiction will one day no longer be able to ruin, that, that shame will not rule, that emptiness and depression and anxiety and confusion and chaos and unfulfilled longing will not win in your life. That you, by placing your faith in Christ, are brought into community with God and into his family that reveals him to one another and to the world around us in such a way that we are encapsulated in an unending, unable to be broken body. Community with God and one another. That sin cannot come up against, that cannot be broken. It's a promise that there is life in a king who came to do all that is required for us to have salvation and that his kingdom that we can be brought into is what we ultimately long for, that we no longer have to look at the world and think to ourselves, how do I become my own king or who needs to be my king? What kingdom do I need to build? What do I need to pursue? Because all of those kingdoms will come to an end, but this kingdom with this king, the gates of hell will not prevail against. See, this is the promise that by placing our faith in him, we are brought into his body. We become his people, the church, all who place their faith in him. Then we see the second thing. It's a prayer. But before I go to the prayer, I do want to say this. This is why this promise is why when we go through life and we find struggles and we deal with different things, especially as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians and we come up against a a plethora of things that we will have to struggle through, that right off the bat, because of this promise, we need to know what position we hold. This is the position that I hold. This is the position that the church holds. No matter what we come up against, no matter what struggle it is, I just want to go ahead and lay the foundation out because of this promise of the gospel truth in Christ and what he brings us into as his people that sin cannot prevail against. This is the position that we hold on everything that we will go through through this book. So I'm just, if you've been reading ahead and you're going, man, I wonder what they're going to say about this topic and this topic and this topic, let me just go ahead and give you the foundation for it all based on this promise. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we can't have understanding outside of who we are in Jesus. We will not know what we are to do and who we are and what is right and what is true outside of Jesus. So, so here's my position on all the things that we, will, that we will face. Here's our position as a church. Our position on religious people 
is that they need Jesus. Our position on irreligious people is that they need Jesus. Our position on the educated is that they need Jesus. Our position on the uneducated is that they need Jesus. Our position on the heterosexual is that they need Jesus. Our position on the LGBTQ plus community is that they need Jesus. Our position on married people is that they need Jesus. Our position on single people is that they need Jesus. Our position on the poor is that they need Jesus. Our position on the rich is that they need Jesus. Our position on the oppressed is that they need Jesus. Our position on the oppressor is that they need Jesus. Our position on the young is that they need Jesus. Our position on the old is that they need Jesus. Are you starting to get the point? Our position on the tall is that they need Jesus. Our position on the short is that they need Jesus. If you drive a Ford or a Chevy, you need Jesus. Listen. My position on myself over all other things is that I desperately need Jesus. So our position is that Jesus, everything begins and ends with him. It is all about him. And without him, we cannot know who we are, where we belong, or what we are to do. Now, some of you might say, Braden, that sounds a little bit narrow-minded. It could come across like you're just kind of against everybody that doesn't agree with everything that you just said. And I would say, no, I hold that position because I love everyone. I hold that position because I know the love of Jesus. And all of us desperately need Jesus. And when the church loses sight of that, and that's why Paul puts out this foundation before he gets into any of the issues, because when we lose sight of that, then the church isn't just talking about wicked things. The church has become a wicked thing. It will totally point us towards things that we are not created to be and we are not called to be and that God is not making us to be. So it's all centered around Jesus. Then there's the prayer. I need to go through this quickly. John chapter 17, you don't have to turn there. The promise is that through the gospel truth, we are made God's sons and his daughters. We are brought into his family. Sin, evil will not prevail against it. And then there's a prayer that is so intertwined with that. When Jesus is about to go on trial for our crimes and he's about to take our sin on his shoulders by dying on the cross for them. He prays a final prayer on earth. We find it in John chapter 17. It is one of the, if not the uh, most favorite passage of mine in all of scripture, where he prays about this promise to his church. In the other gospel books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, what we see is the final moments of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They give us a different view of Jesus' last moments on earth. And we don't have time to dig into those this morning. But what we get out of that is that Jesus is, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in those other three Gospels. And he's saying, God, Father, if there is any other way for your people to be saved, if there's any other way for this promise to be fulfilled, if there's any other way that salvation can come to a people, then can we do that? And it seems like three times Jesus prays that prayer and three times the Father is silent. But three times Jesus goes to the disciples and sees that they are sleeping. 
And I believe in that sleep, God is speaking extremely loud. That as Jesus says, is there any other way? And then he looks at those who he has chosen to carry on his truth after he has died and risen and ascended. They're sleeping. And that is God's answer of no. Only Jesus can save. Only he has lived perfectly for us. And so we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that we need Jesus for our salvation. There's no other way for the promise of his people and salvation to be fulfilled. But John gives us a different prayer, a different look at the prayer. And he says, for those who are in God, what we learn here in this prayer is that we are called to be his people, but we cannot live in the way that he has called us to. We cannot grow in the maturity that he has called us to together, and we cannot reveal him on mission in the way that he has called us to reveal him on mission alone. That yes, we need him for salvation. Each one of us needs to place our faith in him, but we are brought into a community and to live in the freedom and joy that God has called us to. We cannot do it alone. It happens in community. We are in community with God and called to reveal that community together for our personal growth and for the mission that God has sent us to. So all of life is about glorifying him and we're called to do so in community. Now, I, for one, get goosebumps. It's one of the reasons that John chapter 17 is one of my favorite passages, because when I think about the reality of Jesus praying, and in verse 20, he prays for us, I get goosebumps when I, when I think about that. I mean, can you imagine Jesus walking into this place in the flesh, and then John chapter 17 says that he looked up to the Father and he began to pray. Could you imagine him coming into this place and praying over us? Now, my my thought would be that as he does that, all of us would be deeply impacted. And whatever it is that he prays, and even in this case, knowing that it is his last and final prayer on earth. There's one thing that I know. When you know that you are giving your final words, they are not light. They are not wasted You are giving and speaking what you want people to desperately understand. You're speaking in a way that this is the thing that means the most to me. And as I go, I need you to know. And he stands and prays and he prays in John chapter 17 for us. And my thought would be that as we hear that and we would leave this place, we would desperately want to walk in whatever it is that he prays we would walk in. It would radically begin to shift everything that we are. And so as we see this prayer and we come to it and, and, and we would be impacted by that. And the crazy thing is that we see in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus actually is interceding on our behalf even now in this moment. And in John chapter 17, we actually get the best picture we have of Jesus's heart for his people. And so I would submit to you that there's a good chance that when Jesus is interceding for his people on our behalf, even in this moment, that his heart would match the unchanging heart that he had while he was on earth in his final prayer in John chapter 17. And what he prays in John chapter 17, first he centers on himself. In the first five verses, he he prays about who he is and who God is. This is the foundation, as I said, for everything. It all begins ends and ends with Jesus. This is what gives it power. 
Then he prays for the disciples that are with him. And certainly that truth applies to us, but it was primarily specifically for those who were his disciples and followers at that point. But then in verse 20, he prays for us. He says, I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is important, and we can't dive into this this morning, but as the gospel is proclaimed and revealed in and amongst the people, the people of God grow, and they go out on mission, and as the gospel is proclaimed, generation after generation after generation of people place their faith in Christ all the way to us. And Jesus says, I pray for all of those who come to faith through their proclamation of the truth. That's us. And there will be generations after us as long as the Lord tarries. But then that's not all he says. I'm not only praying for you. What does he actually pray? What does he desire? He says, I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then he says, Father, let them be one. So this is the ask. Let them be one, all believers, just as you and I are one. So when we place our faith in Jesus, we are brought into community with God. We are one with him. We are as we were created to be. We have the identity that we were created to have. But then he says this, so that the world may know that I am the Savior. Listen, this is our identity completely wrapped up into one line. Who am I? I am God's. Where do I belong? I belong as his people. I belong in community with him. Where am I uh, to be? What position do I have? Why am I here? And he says that we are to live in this community in unity with him so that the world may know we have a mission that we would reveal him in everything that we do to put the gospel on display in unity as his people to reveal the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what I want us to understand. As we get into what Paul is talking about, it's going to be very clear to us that he has one topic in mind in these verses. And what we are referring back to is the promise of God to bring his people who he brings salvation to through his work together in unity that the world may know who he is. And so our identity in Christ, our purpose in Christ, where we belong is all tied up in who we are in him and how we live that unity we have in him out together. So here's what we need to know. The gospel truth sets us free from finding who we are in the things of the world, from building our own kingdoms and seeking to be our own kings. And when that happens, we no longer need anything in the world to make us who we long to be or were created to be, we find our satisfaction in understanding deeper and deeper who we are in God himself. That allows us to live with everything that we have with open hands because I no longer need things to become something. I am who I am in Christ, and therefore everything that I have is used to reveal, not to become. 
Every relationship that I have, I see through the lens of who I am in Jesus, saved by his grace. So therefore, I see others' value as being made in his image, and I don't need to use them for something that I don't have. I don't need to get something from them that I need because I have everything that I need in my relationship and community with God. So now that I have unity and right relationship with God, I can begin to have unity and right relationship with others. This is something all of us are seeking in the world, but none of us can find because we're all seeking naturally our place and value in the things of the world. And when we do that, it will cause division. Every single time. We don't have time to dig deep into why that actually takes place, but every time we find unity in the things of the world, we build community around things of the world, we find value in the things of the world, we seek who we want to be in relationships that we have in the world that are not centered around Christ, then it will cause division. Only in Christ can we have the unity that we're called to because only in Christ are we set free from needing to find or to gain or to build what we can only have in him. So it says, Father, I want you to reveal yourself to them in this way, that they would be one as we are one. So then Jesus does die on the cross. He raises from the grave. He tells the disciples that he's not going to leave them alone because, remember, we cannot do this on our own. So he says, I'm going to send a helper. The Holy Spirit is going to come and live and dwell in the life of the believer. And the Spirit will empower you to live in the unity that I have given you, to display the unity to the world that I am calling you to. In Acts chapter 1-8, before the church began, he tells the disciple that they will receive that power. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will be his witnesses next door into the ends of the earth. Then he does ascend back into his rightful place in heaven as sovereign Lord over all things. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes. The church is born that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And in the first century, the church begins to explode on this unity that they have in Christ amongst the divided people. As Christianity became the first ever thing that people believed in and gathered around to build community that wasn't based on cultural norms, that wasn't based on where you're from, that wasn't based on what you look like, that wasn't based on how you speak. It was the first diverse community that was ever built and made, and it was all given in Christ. The one who brings unity and diversity Because it's all centered about who we are in him and not who we are in the world. Which allows the diversity that we have in the world to become a beautiful thing that allows us to experience and understand our diverse God in a deeper way than we ever could before. So those diversities become beautiful amongst his people. And and fast forward a couple years, and God calls this guy named Paul. Paul, who was playing for the wrong team, and God says, hey, I want you to to follow me. I'm going to transform your life. And he radically transforms Paul. He calls Paul to be a missionary to the Gentile, all the non-Jews. Paul, on his second missionary journey of planting churches, goes to Corinth, this really important city. He stays there for a year and a half, and He plants a church there with mostly um, Gentile people. And again, this is a city that people are being called out to follow Christ where where essentially it is this large city, very influential city. We talked about all of this last week. There was very high traffic. 
lots of religious backgrounds, lots of cultural backgrounds, very progressive. It was a hipster city. It was based on making money, finding success, gaining power, and having the freedom to follow your own hearts, much like our world today. And it was a great opportunity for the church to reveal the love and unity of Christ together in a broken and divided culture, much like we face today to reveal the kingdom of God in a broken culture. And they are at a crossroads just a few years later after Paul leaves, about five years down the road. They are at this crossroads of really having to determine, will we follow Christ? Will we believe his word? Or will we follow culture and will we believe the word of the culture? Will we reveal Christ in the culture that we live in and be a, a, a light upon a hill, a, a city within a city? Will we be in the world but not of the world? Or will we allow the culture to determine how the church sees God and how the church experiences God and how the church reads his word and how the church lives in the community? This is a crossroads that we also find ourselves in today. Will the church follow God? Will the church follow his word? Or will the church follow the word of the culture? Will the church follow what the culture says is the norm? Will the church have an impact in the love and revealing the love and unity of Jesus in the culture that we are called to, in the cities that we belong to? Or will the city impact what the church looks like and what the church talks about and what the church does and what the church becomes? This is a major crossroads that we are at today. And Paul is calling them, us, to center ourselves around Christ. He reminds us of the promise of the gospel of his people. And he calls us to live in the power of the prayer that Jesus prays for us. Look in this text, chapter 1, verse 10. There's one thing that we need to talk about this morning together. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, this is all of the church, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul's saying, okay, I'm foundationally setting all of this letter on the word of God. We need to know that this is his word. This is from him. This is what he is calling us to. He has saved us. He has called us to himself. He has called us to a community. And if we want to live in the reality of the gospel and the joy and the freedom that we have in him, and if we want to reveal that to the rest of the world, if we want to be able to receive everything else that I'm going to talk about in this letter, then we need to know that we belong to God and in unity, we reveal God to one another and to the world. This is how we walk in him. For it has been reported, verse 11, for by Chloe's people that there are, uh, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of us says, I follow Apollo, or, or I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And we talked about them last week. They were early followers in, in the church of Corinth. And I think Paul's kind of saying this a little bit sarcastically. He's like, baptism points to what it represents, the death and burial of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The church is all about Jesus. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. Why are you arguing who, over who baptized you? 
And then he jokingly is just like, I don't think I baptized any of you, thankfully, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he kind of fills it in. He's like, remember somebody. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any uh, of you uh, else or not. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, which is really important. We'll see in a second. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So when we read this text, really this idea of unity as a foundation in the church body for our walk with God and for our mission that God has sent us on as a central foundation for what we need to understand to be able to walk forward together as the body of Christ, to be able to walk in the joy that God allows for us. Now, we know that this is the second letter to the church in Corinth. We don't have the first one. There were four together. We only have two of them. The first one Paul sent, the church writes back, and this is Paul's response. So this is why it says that Chloe's people kind of let fill Paul in on what was going on. Because what happened is the church in Corinth wrote back to Paul, and they asked Paul some questions. They kind of did the thing we typically do, like, hey, how are you guys doing? Oh, we're good, you know? Like, maybe if you want to say something about marriage, uh, we could, you know, deal with a little bit of that. That could always be helpful, even though we're doing good. And if you want to tell us about maybe the afterlife, we've been kind of talking about, you know, what's the resurrection going to look like and all of that kind of stuff, but we're good, right? And then Chloe's people come along because she sees the crossroad. She sees the church going down the path of the culture or influencing the culture and revealing Christ in the cities that they live in. And so she comes along and says, hey, Paul, I need you to know what's actually going on here. There's all kinds of chaos. And so Paul addresses the questions that they ask, but he also addresses a whole bunch of things that they don't ask, but are actually taking place. He addresses the crossroad that they are at. He addresses the crossroad that we are at in our American culture and church. So he reminds them of the gospel, and he calls them to unity around that gospel, which is so critical for us. So, so let me just get really practical for just a couple of minutes that we have left together, and I want to talk about unity. What is unity in the gospel? What is unity not in the gospel? Because I think from, from the 30,000-foot view, we can all understand everything that, that I've kind of laid out theologically of why unity is important, why salvation is important, why it is only in Jesus, why Jesus calls us to be together in the gospel truth for unity. But what does it actually look like in our daily lives? What does it look like in the church? We all know that, and most of us probably knew all of that coming into this place, but yet I ask the question, how many of you long for unity in the church? And every single one of us raises our hands. And my guess is most of us would say it's not there in the way that I believe it should be. So what does it actually look like? So I just want to give us a couple of things. We could, we could do a whole series on this, so I know we're just scratching the surface, but what is unity and what is unity not? And so first, let me just say, that unity in the gospel does not mean that the whole church should just be one big church. It doesn't mean that. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that, that, that all of us just kind of need to gather together and there should just be one big church in every city. We don't even see that in scripture. It perhaps was the case here in Corinth, but we know that the church, uh, the letter written to Galatia was to the churches of 
that area. Um, so we know that there's diversity in gatherings uh, in the New Testament. So Paul's not saying that unity in the gospel means that we all just get together. There aren't any denominations. Now, denominations can be both good and bad, and there aren't different expressions of the church body in a city, but that's not actually what unity means in the gospel. I believe that God has called me here as a pastor here in Winston-Salem. He's given us a vision for the city. But I also believe that he has called hundreds of other pastors here for a vision for the city. And I don't believe that he's called hundreds of pastors here so that we can compare ourselves to one another and have a race to see who can please God the fastest and the best. I think he has called us here because he has a plan for the local expressions of the church to make up his church, to be unified in the gospel truths so that those churches who might reach people that we don't reach will reach them and we might reach people that they would not reach and we will reach them and we will see many, many people come to faith in Jesus and be unified with the entire church of our city and of our world in Jesus and the gospel truth. So it doesn't mean that we're all one church. God calls local expressions and uses them in different ways. But it does mean, and this is the reason that we are so heavy on collaboration, it does mean that we are to be unified in some things as God's people. And so we should love the churches around us. We should not talk poorly about them. We should not put them down. We should not uh, say that one is better than the other for X, Y, Z reasons of making us feel more comfortable or for having more programs or whatever it may be. We should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should know that God has called certain people to certain churches for certain times to be with certain peoples on certain missions. And we should love the reality that God is bringing a diverse people of his calling to our city so that many might be reached. And so we want to pray for other churches in our city. We want to long for other churches in our city to do well. We're going to pray for Center Grove Church after our service today. And guess what? If God does everything Thing we want for our city through Center Grove Church, then praise be to God. I'm thankful that we get to get on our knees and pray that God would use them. So we need to be about what God is doing through his people, but it doesn't mean that we are one big church together. Unity also does not mean the modern term, at least, for what we would say is tolerance and acceptance. This is not unity in the gospel. That leads to actually a false love, and it defeats truth. Now, there, there are two different definitions for tolerance, and so I want to acknowledge that. There's a traditional view of tolerance, and that is basically what I grew up with. It means we could disagree on different things, uh, but we can still be friends. We can talk about those things, and we genuinely might care for one another, understanding truth. And so I might think this and you might think that, and we can talk and genuinely care and show compassion and love because we really believe what we believe is true and we want everybody to know the truth. So we might sometimes have to disagree, uh, agree to disagree, but we can walk away as friends. We can walk away caring for one another, loving one another. That type of tolerance of belief and freedom to believe what you feel like is true is good, but we also want to share as believers the truth and love people towards that truth. However, tolerance today is accepting and affirming all things as equally true. It's, it's the idea of you cannot say that I'm wrong because 
I believe this and this is who I am. And this is what happens the further we go down the trail of finding life and self and finding identity in self and seeking to build our own kingdoms in the world. The more and more we dive into trying to make our own identity in the world or build our own kingdom in the world, the more and more we're going to find our value and worth in the places that we put ourselves, in the communities that we put ourselves in, in the things that we believe are giving us value and and that worth that we're searching for, that identity that we're searching for. And so when people speak against it, even if it's in truth and love, today we cannot handle that because it feels like it's destroying our value. It feels like it's coming right up against who I am. But when this is the way that we function, so you have to agree with what I believe is true, then what ends up happening when you don't agree, even if you do it in love and with compassion and with care and you truly desire to understand truth and you're open to even hearing what they are saying, is when you don't agree, we, ha- we cannot walk away and agree to disagree, but we need to destroy the opposite opinion. Because it's, it's who I am. It gives me value, and by you not agreeing, it devalues me. And so we begin to destroy truth itself. We begin to destroy love itself. This type of tolerance is not love, it's indifference. And essentially, if we look at it in a biblical perspective, it's the opposite of repentance. It's essentially just saying, I'm finding myself in all these things of the world. I feel guilt, I feel shame. But rather than repenting and seeking truth, what I want to do is just call everything right and nothing wrong. That way I don't have to repent. I don't have to change. I don't have to transform. I just am who I am. And that's the way that we deal with guilt and shame. Everything is just right and good. So we need to know that unity is not tolerating all things, though it is loving all people. It is loving people with compassion. It is pointing people towards truth in the most compassionate and caring way that we possibly can. Now, it's also important to know that unity does not mean uniformity. Like sometimes we get this idea that everybody in the church has to agree on everything at all times, in all ways, and we all just need to wear khaki pants and polo shirts tucked in and drink the Kool-Aid. We don't all have to think and, and believe everything exactly the same. That's how you start cults. Okay, so unity in the gospel isn't uniformity in everything. We are unified in the truth of Christ, and we're unified around what we would call the close-handed truths of Scripture. So there are things that are more open-handed in Scripture, things that are more close-handed in Scripture. The close-handed things are the gospel truths that the Bible is extremely clear about that have to do with our salvation, life, and Him. And so Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to start the church. Jesus promised that the church gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus is returning to make all things new. These are close-handed things we base the reality of our salvation and life and eternity on. Therefore, we need to have unity in those things. These are the gospel truths. Not only that, But we also, and this is something that's overlooked very often, is that we also need to have unity in the close-handed gospel truths and the principles or moral laws that God lays out for us to walk in salvation and freedom and joy in. 
This often gets overlooked, but we talked about before how in the Bible there are three different types of law, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. The ceremonial laws were completed in Christ. The civil laws changed with cultures and times. The moral laws are what God has laid out for us to actually walk in community with him so that we can live in joy and not veer away from him and begin seeking life and things he created for us to reveal him and give him glory with. And we start seeking them and, and seeking meaning out of them and giving glory to them rather than using them to give glory to God. So he gives us a path, a a law to walk in, and it is joy to walk in. It's freedom to walk in. He gives us the power through this Holy Spirit, he says, to walk in those things and to understand that we're not doing them out of duty, but we're doing them out of identity. See, every single one of us, we, we do what we do because of who we are. Who we are determines what we do is what we often say. And so what we believe, who we are, what we believe of ourselves, it determines what we do. And, and we say this all the time. I'll give one really quick. I don't have time to do this, but I'm just going to, I'll go ahead and do it. Um, so, so oftentimes we'll think to ourselves, well, the circumstances around us actually determine what we think and what we do. This is kind of the natural thing. All of my kids think this, right? I made them do everything, okay? And this is the natural thing we do even as adults. And so if you take, let's just use two grown women, And Tim Keller, I think, was the first one that kind of laid this out for me. He oftentimes helps me understand things that I've already been preaching for years in a way that I should have understood a long time ago. Um, So let's take two grown women. They both go for a high-level job interview. Neither one of them get it. One of them responds in extreme anger. The other one responds with just extreme depression. They're just at the lowest point of their lives. They're questioning everything about who they are. Now, if circumstances determine how we respond and how we act and who we are, then it would stand to reason that when they both go for the same job and they both don't get the job, they would respond in the same way. Yet one responds in anger and one responds in depression. Why? Because the one who responds in anger believes that she deserved the job, that she's better than anybody else that would get the job. And she thinks, one day I will show them they should have hired me because she believes that she's the best. What she believes of herself determines how she responds, how she acts, what she does. The other is, is, has, has not gotten the job and she believes of herself, I'm not good enough for the job. Man, it just, it just was revealed to me that I don't deserve the job. I'm not good at what I do. I'm not, I'm not good enough to get what, what I want to do. Because she believes that she's not good enough. See, everything that we do stems from a belief. Same thing with justice and desiring for all of oppression to be ended in the world and all of those different kinds of things. That's not based on empirical evidence. That's based on your belief. It's a religious view. You desire good because you were created by a good God to have community with him and for it to be expressed in community. So who you are determines what you do. And so we hold these things, these principles and these truths of who God is. And these are the things, listen to me, that we find unity in. Now, there are secondary issues like 
When is Jesus going to return? Can, we, can people still speak in tongues? All of these things are biblical truths that we need to investigate. We need to understand to the deepest of our ability, but we need to hold them a little more open-handed. And we understand that there are differences of opinions that, that the Bible speaks to that could be what the Bible is telling us. And so there might be differences of opinions on some of those things. There are also just preferences and these are just methods that we use. So this even plays into the theological close-handed things and the moral law that God gives us. For example, God calls us to surrender to him completely for salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, are we saved? And then if you're a parent in the room, he calls you to reveal him and what it looks like to live a completely uh, surrendered life to Christ to your children and to train them up in the things of God. That is the truth of God, close-handed thing, and the principle of God lived out, but the preferential method might differ wildly. That's okay. We are not to argue on whether you think that raising your kids in a godly way by seeing you love them is by sending them to public school and then talking about all the things that they, that they hear and all the things that they go through or sending them to private school so that they get a Christian education or homeschooling them. All of those are methods but the thing that we have unity over is we surrender our lives to Christ alone for salvation by his grace through faith. And we are called to reveal that faith to our children and to the rest of the world. Those are the things we have unity around. Those are the things we stand on a hill and are willing to die on. And the preferences and the second-handed things are the things that we typically fight over in the church. And it makes us look like idiots in the world. They don't see us and know that our God is real because all we want to argue about are the weird things that we're not supposed to have unity over. We have unity in the close-handed things and the moral law of God. Those are the things that we stand on. Now, there are preferences, and those are great, and those are fine, as long as they don't become prejudices, as long as you don't build community around them. You can have secondary issues, but as long as you don't make them first-handed issues, then those things are great, and you can talk about them in community and in your small groups and all those different kinds of things. But don't make it that what you're about on mission, because what we're supposed to be about on mission is Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, the close-handed things, and that we walk in a path that is different than the world because we live in freedom and the world is enslaved. Those are the things that we reveal. Those are the things that we are to have unity around. And if we don't, Paul says in the book of Romans that we are just like, we might go out and just talk about Jesus, but this is kind of just going on the whole time. We're trying to talk about Jesus and they just, because we're like a clanging gong. We're sharing and proclaiming spiritual truths, but they're not what we're supposed to have unity around and the world doesn't see unity. We don't experience the unity. We don't grow into full maturity around what we're supposed to have full maturity around. We don't reveal the gospel and what we're actually supposed to be revealing. And you might as well just be walking around with symbols in the background of your life because no one cares. You're not giving a definition with your unity amongst believers to what you are proclaiming true of Jesus. And so the world doesn't see Jesus as alive and living and transforming and active. So Paul says, you need to foundationally have this unity. Now, a kajillion things more to say, but I got to wrap it up. He uses this example 
of saying, hey, you guys are leaning into and saying that you're following these different things. This is an example of how the culture is infiltrating the church. So there's a background to him saying, some are saying they follow Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus. There was a thing that was going on, it was really popular in this time, uh, that was called sophistry. And sophistry was when someone who was really trained in Greek rhetoric and philosophy would travel around to different cities. They were all over Corinth. And they would speak, and they would just speak with eloquence and wisdom. This is, this is what Paul's referring to in verse 17. And many people, it was the main entertainment of the cities of the day. They would have their own disciples, and they would go into the city before the sophists would get there, and they would try to build their sophist up, and they would try to put down other sophists so that their, their sophist would be kind of the big person in town, and they would be their disciple, and they would one day kind of roll into their place and be able to say they were the disciple of this sophist, and this entertaining uh, movement was happening. And that's why Paul says, listen, I'm not coming to you with eloquent words. I'm not a sophist. I'm coming to you with the truth of Jesus. But, the, but the, the culture was infiltrating into the church, and so they were just going, well, you know, all these other people are saying they follow these really eloquent speakers, and so let's just do that in the church as well. It's not going to be about Jesus anymore, but I'm going to follow Paul because I've been here since the beginning. I'm going to follow Apollos because he's the most famous, and he's the most popular one, and he's the, the best speaker so I'm like, I'm going to follow Peter because, you know, I have a Jewish background and he has a Jewish background. He's really entrenched in Jewish law. So I'm going to follow him. And then some people are like, I'm just going to follow Christ. And we might think that's the group I want to be in. But what's actually happening there is that they're going, you know what? I'm just fed up with all the mess in the church. And so I don't think I need to follow anybody or anything that the church is doing. I'm just going to follow Jesus, and me and Jesus are going to be down by the river with a fishing pole on Sunday because I'm fed up with everything that's going on in the church. They can't get their act together. So basically what's being described here are those who are pushing back on all authority. I'm just following Jesus. Like I'm closest to Jesus in the woods. Well, you might have a great moment with Jesus in the woods, but you are not closest to Jesus in the woods. That's not what the Bible says. You have close unity with him in, but rather real unity with the body of Christ is the closest that we can get to him. So all of this, this, this cultural infiltration is happening. Now, listen to me. I know that all of us here, and this is how I'm going to close, all of us here think to ourselves, yeah, you know, like I really want unity and I love everybody and I'm, I'm open to having unity. And we don't think that the culture is, is infiltrating the way that we love Jesus and view his word and view scripture and view his church. But here's how I'm going to close. Really quickly, close your eyes. I promise you're in a safe place and everything will be okay. Okay, nobody's going to steal your purse or wallet. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think... Am I really chasing after Jesus and unity in him? Or am I allowing the culture to infiltrate the way that I view him and his church and unity in his church? And I want you to think to yourself to, about two different things. I want you to think to yourself about church, sitting in a church gathering. And I want you to think to yourself about sitting in and watching a movie. Think about those two things. And then I'm going to ask some questions, and I want you to think about this. When you leave church or you leave the movie and you get in your car to drive away, what are the things that, that hit your mind? Do you ask questions like, did you like that? 
What was the best part? Did you like the songs? Did you understand that one part? Do you like how it ended? Did it move you? Was it funny enough? Was it entertaining enough? Were there any tweetable lines that we can use on social media to make sure everybody knows that we were there? Is it worth our investment? Are other people that we know also involved in this and are they enjoying it? Are we outliers by doing this? Now open your eyes. Was I talking about a movie or was I talking about church gathering? You don't know. Because this is so, the culture has so infiltrated us to be about consumerism and materialism and comfort that we seek in the people of God the same thing that the world tells us to seek in the community. And so all that we think about when we come to church is how does it suit me? How does it help me? How does it comfort me? How is it all about me and not all about Jesus? So the church community is built around the, around the wrong things and we'll never have the unity that God has called us to. But the body of Christ comes together to worship God, to hear from his word. And yeah, we can have our preferences and things can be nice and the music can be great and all of those different kinds of things. But we should come here desiring to worship God. We should come here desiring to hear from God. We should come here desiring to leave this place and ask the questions of how do I live out my faith where I live and where I work and where I play? We should ask questions to one another like what did God say to us today? What does that mean for us today? What should that look like through us this week? We should think about when we come here, how am I loving people? How am I serving people? How am I open to people? How am I praying for people? Am I building relationships with others who know that I know who they are? And as I know who they are, I love them in a deeper way. Are we asking, how am I going to reach out to people this week and reveal to them the love of Jesus that they might grow in the maturity of Christ as we grow in unity together, centered around him? Are we asking those kinds of questions? And listen, if those were the questions that we had when we left the gathering of God's people, am I talking about a movie or the church? I'm absolutely talking, there is no way that you can mistake those types of questions in that kind of life with anything other than there is a God who is alive and living and active and saving amongst those people. God is transforming those people. And they follow Jesus, not the way that church does something or that church does something or that guy preaches something or those people sing something. It's all about Jesus. He says, is God divided? And the answer is absolutely not. And we should not live as though he is. Listen, what if it was normal in our church for people to be unified in Jesus? What would it look like? What would the world see? How would you grow? If those were the types of questions that we were asking, would we not grow into a full maturity in Christ? Would we not constantly be challenged in him? Would we not constantly feel the love of other people? Would we not constantly be revealing who Jesus is and that he actually saves? Yes. What does it look like for you to be a part of that today? What if everybody in our city knew someone whose life was being changed by the gospel truth and knew that they were in a gospel-centered community that they too could be invited into? 
Listen, this is what we want to center our lives around. This is what has the most meaning for you. This is the purpose that you were called to. Unity in Jesus and unity together.